Lord, you are the same God. Same spirit that we read about, that we see move in power is the same spirit that is alive today and moving in us, amongst us. It's the same power that is available to us, living in us, changing us, molding us, shaping us. That same power that rolled the stone away. You are not a dead God. You are alive. You are not uh, weak. Your arm is not short to save. You are mighty in power. You are our provider. As you provided then, you provide now. As you healed then, you heal now. As you desired salvation then and came through, you desire it and come through now. Lord, as you drew the hearts of men and women in, in, in days gone by, you draw our hearts near to yours. And as we lift up worship and declare truth and sing, Lord, we know that we lift up the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the one who has power over all. You are the same God. It speaks to your holiness, your consistency, your goodness, your faithfulness. And it is so in contrast to the darkness we see in our world and even within ourselves. But we know that you are light. And we know the light has overcome the darkness. And so we trust and hope and put our faith in you. We give everything over to you, all honor, all praise. And it's my prayer that on the start of this Easter weekend, we start with that truth as being foundational. That you are the same God, that you are alive, that you are speaking with us, that you are active in our midst. Would you be over this time and a faithful Jesus into church said, Amen. Amen. Hey, I'm glad you're at the 7 p.m. This is our third one in a row. Anything could happen. Um, but as you take your seats, why not give someone a Good Friday uh, high five, fist bump, dealer's choice? All right, how's the 7 p.m. doing? Okay, I knew it was going to be loud. I didn't think it would be that loud. So I didn't even have to do it again. I normally have to do it again for people to wake them up. But I think it was good enough. Um, I'm excited that you're here. Uh, we've had an amazing two gatherings, uh, but I'm most excited for this one right now um, because I really love that Easter weekend is huge just in, in, in the depth of the truth that it is and how important it is within not just us, but in how it absolutely split history in half. And so as we take a look, I think it's important. Uh, Easter is a moment where we get to celebrate because spoiler alert, we know what happens. But I think it's important on Friday to for a moment realize that darkness did think it won. That there was a moment where darkness reigned. That there was a moment where, when, where the followers of Jesus weren't quite sure where this was going to go. And I think it's important that as we prepare our hearts like an advent for Christmas, for Jesus is coming and him being born into human history, taking on flesh. I think it's important that we take a moment on Friday on flesh. I think it's important that we take a moment on Friday to prepare our hearts even for the reality and the truth that we know is there, that the battle is one that he does walk out the grave. But to sit in that moment and have it speak to us, 
Because I know there'll be many of us who we have done this many times. We've heard this message many times. For some of us, it might be your first time, and this is foreign, this is alien. You got brought here by a friend or family member kicking and screaming. All cards on the table. This word, this truth, this story, the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus dying, will speak to every single one of us. We're in this series, our Easter series called Confessions, and the tagline is, words that shape the greatest journey in history. And it's really confessions from Jesus and from others about who he is and what he came to do. And every single one of us, doesn't matter who you are, you will have to make a confession about the truth of Jesus. You will have to make a response to who he said he was, to what he did, and the implications that that have, has on us. And so I want to encourage you, I really do hold this uh, in, in high stead, that the most important thing is what you confess about this moment in history. Uh, I had uh, the privilege of uh, lecturing in, on Monday in our institute class, it's our Bible school, uh, in our foundations class. And uh, I went to this quote, because it's one of my favorites. A.W. Tozer says, uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so what comes into your mind when you look to the cross and the truth of the, the, the crucifixion, before we even get into resurrection, when we talk about who Jesus is, how he died and why he died, you're going to have to make a call, a confession on what that means. I'm going to pray and we're going to get into it. Is that good? Father God, I do pray that you will be over these moments, that there will be a moment for each one of us to respond, whether we are new to this or we've been here for a long time. Because this is the greatest moment in history. This is the moment where humanity murdered God. And yet we call it Good Friday. And it blows our mind that we could ever have something like this be celebrated in the brutality and the horrendous picture of you bleeding and broken on the cross for us. But the key was it was for us. I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts wherever we are at. You will meet us where we are at that you will come and bring those, draw those who are far from you near, draw us close to your heart. Doesn't matter who we are, you've got us for the next few minutes. Will you speak to us? Will you be over my words? Will this be your will, not mine? In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. amen. To catch you up, we pick up right where Malcolm left off last week. And so he had looked at the trial of Jesus under Pontius Pilate, and we've got to the point in Scripture and the account toward the cross, the journey to the cross, where now Pilate has handed Jesus over to be crucified. And so he hands over Jesus according to the will of the crowd, the crowd that had cried, uh, give us Barabbas, the murderer, and crucify the innocent one, Jesus. And so Pilate will give Jesus over to his soldiers who will beat Jesus, who will scourge Jesus, and overnight... Uh, they will inflict as much damage and pain as they can on Jesus. And then they will lead him to his execution. And that's where we pick up in the latter part of Luke chapter 23. It says this from verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. We'll get back to that. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. First heading I want to look at uh, tonight is the crowd. 
It says that there was a great multitude that had gathered to watch this blockbuster event in history, Jesus being crucified, Easter weekend beginning. And in this crowd, I think it's important to ask who was there. Because what we find in this crowd, in the different characters through this account, is those who were both passive and active, ones who were just uh, uh, onlookers, bystanders, ones who were active in the equation, had some real skin in the game when it came to Jesus. We had people who believed in Jesus and people who were in unbelief. So you have passive, active, belief and unbelief all happening. But we also have to realize that there were very real people in it. Sometimes we just go to, it was a crowd, it was a multitude, and we forget that there were faces and people who this was greatly affecting. That actually Jesus' disciples were there witnessing this. That Jesus' family was there witnessing this. His brothers, his sisters, his mom had to watch this happen. There were those who were throwing insults and mocking him and spitting. There was the Roman authorities trying to exert power in this moment. There was the rulers and scribes of the nation of Israel who were celebrating because this is actually what they wanted. And in the midst of the crowd, my goal by the end of this is that we would see ourselves in the crowd. Because every single person in the crowd had to make a call, a confession on who Jesus was and what the implication of that was to their life. And we all have to do the same. And so I hope you start to see yourself somewhere in the passive or the active, somewhere in the unbelief or the unbelief, in the belief. I remember a moment where I was in the crowd and to be honest, it was passive. The the history I have is one that I know a lot of people would probably swap for, but I grew up in a Christian home where I've now done, this is now my 31st Easter weekend. And I want to tell you, I have never missed an Easter weekend not being in church. And so that's the story I have. But there was a long passage where this thing was passive, even though I was in some form of belief. It wasn't yet real to me. Jesus hadn't made himself personally known to me. And so it was simply just the thing we did. But I remember the journey Jesus took me on, taking me from passive, uh, being a passive onlooker bystander, someone who was just following what we did as a part of going to church to the point of being active in my belief that he's the real deal, that what he said about himself was true, that what he did actually changed my life, my identity, gave me a purpose that changed the trajectory of all that I have done since. And the truth is every single one of us will have to make a call just like that. Now, in the midst of this procession, in the midst of the great multitude that was watching this go on, it was quite common for the Roman soldiers at the time to, as they were gonna crucify someone, to carry with them a sign that spoke of the crime that now had brought this punishment. And ironically, what, the, what we read later is the Roman soldiers had brought a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It was a sign that the Roman authorities were using to be like, if you want to think rebellion, if you want to think disobedience, don't do this because you'll end up like him. Ironically, it was a sign that actually spoke truth. That it was who he was. That was who he claimed to be. And as we move into it, in the craziness of the scene, I love that as Jesus, even as his body has been so broken and beaten, in the chaos of people insulting him, these women who are passively following him, crying and mourning and lamenting. And so they found themselves in passive belief. But Jesus takes the time to speak to them. 
And what he says to them in verse 28 is this, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. All these ladies are rightly weeping over the one that they cared for, the one that they were following. Seeing seeing him in that position, it made sense for them to weep. And yet Jesus says, hey, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves and your children. And there's a twofold meaning to Jesus' warning. Because he was speaking both to the nation of Israel. That's why he uses that phrase, daughters of Jerusalem. Because actually he was going back to words he had spoken as he prophesied uh, what would happen in that generation. And it would actually be accomplished in the next few decades. Because what he spoke of was the prophecy that the nation of Israel would be torn apart by a pagan enemy. That the uh, city of Jerusalem would be sacked. That the temple would be destroyed and it would never be restored again. And that would happen in 70 AD within that generation. He knew what was coming for these women and their children. See, because the nation of Israel had missed their Messiah. They knew the Messiah was coming. They knew he had been prophesied. But they had missed Jesus. And so God will take what was the means of their worship, the temple, the structure of worship, and he'll say, you know what? You don't need it anymore. It is now invalid because I brought you the Messiah. But they missed it. And the warning Jesus is giving to the nation of Israel and the warning he's giving to us is that we can never seek righteousness or being right in God's sight by following some form of religious structure or morality or by a cultural way of seeking God or seeking righteousness. If we seek righteousness apart from Jesus, we have missed it. If we try to find it in anything else, it will fall short. It will crumble And those are the things we should weep for. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for those who put their faith in things other than me. That's the challenge for us. So please hear this. Being a good person, being a spiritual person, being a person who seeks God in all things, if it misses Jesus, it misses everything. So within the crowd, we find some other characters popping up in this account on the road to the cross and even the cross itself. And I want to take a look under the second heading that I'm calling the contrast. Because there is a contrast in some of these characters between their passivity and activity, between their belief and their unbelief. And I really believe we will find things talking to us where they are. First contrast I want to look at is Simon the Cyrene and the scoffers. We saw Simon in verse 26. It said, They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. They laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Then in verse 35, it speaks of, And the people stood by watching, passive, but then it moves into active. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Both Simon and the rulers, scribes, priests of that time were finding themselves in unbelief. One was very passive, just an onlooker in the crowd, and others were very active, literally throwing mocks and insults at Jesus. It's so funny that in this scene, the the harshest critics and the ones who threw the most insults and the most venom towards Jesus were actually the people from his own nation, the rulers and scribes and priests of Israel. Because understand, for them, this was not a dark day. This was a success. This was a winning day. 
because they were the ones who had actually planned and acted and instituted the death of Jesus. And so for them, this was celebration time. And they used this phrase, because they knew a Messiah would come, that God would give them a Messiah King to lead them, to free them from oppression, and to be the one that they could, fo that they could follow. But they looked to Jesus, and they say, you know what, this is a blasphemy that's rightly punished. Because he claimed to be the Son of God, but this is no Son of God. Because how could the Son of God look like this? How could the Son of God get beaten like this? How could the Son of God bleed like this? Surely he has the power to save himself. The truth was Jesus had the power, but Jesus chose not to use it because that wasn't the plan. They missed Jesus completely, missed what he came to do. They had missed what the Old Testament prophets had spoke of, that the lamb needed to be killed, that the lamb of God came to bring the sins of the world away, and it came through him laying down his own life. They completely missed Jesus in the midst of this. I think what the rulers had fallen into was a trap we can fall into. It's a trap that is, hey, I'm gonna place my expectations on God. Their expectations were the Messiah, the King should look like this. And when Jesus showed up, that looked very different. They wanted the big guy, the powerful guy, the guy coming on the, riding on the white horse that no one can touch. But seeing the lamb slaughtered and beaten and mocked and spat upon, that doesn't make sense. How often do we place our expectations on God? Where it's God, but I expect you to look like this. I expect you to show up like this. I expect you to do it in this way. I expect you to do it the way I'm thinking. And it challenges us at a very deep, deep level. And yet in the midst of this mocking and insulting the real deal Messiah, throwing insults and spitting upon him, and actually looking and saying, this is right. Jesus will still say in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even in the midst of that scoffing, Jesus will offer mercy. Because I want us to not miss this, that nothing can best the grace and the mercy of Jesus. That even in our complete opposition, even in our, sp even in our spitting in his face, he will still intercede and stand in the middle between us and God for as long as he can. See, because we use grace and mercy quite flippantly, but I think we've missed the meaning of it. Grace is quite different to mercy. Grace is actually getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And both are true in Jesus' death. That actually we have salvation, which is a gift we don't deserve given. But at the same time, because of our sin, our missing the mark, our not going after a holy God in the way that he has called as creator, it actually has weighed for us a, a debt that is against us, something that is owed to us, and yet Jesus will extend mercy. He'll take that on himself. And so God will hold back his wrath from us and put it on Jesus instead. The grace and mercy of, of Jesus cannot, cannot be stopped. Shift over to Simon of Cyrene. He's probably one of my favorite characters in, in the whole story. Because he's quite literally pulled out of obscurity. Passive, just an onlooker, some rando in the crowd. And he gets pulled in because Jesus has been so beaten so badly, he's literally, he's, it says his mom doesn't even recognize him. That's how bad it is. And in the moment where you're called to actually carry the cross to your place of execution, God, uh, Jesus can't do it. And so they pull Simon out and say, right, you carry the cross for him. 
And I think our media and movies and paintings and pictures have kind of messed up our view of what that might look like. Because we have the picture of Jesus carrying the whole cross, vertical piece and horizontal piece. Can I tell you, that's not actually how it happened. The Romans were hectic that they were executing people so many times that actually it made no sense for them to carry the whole thing. And so when you got up to Golgotha, what you would find is a whole bunch of vertical pieces already in the ground, ready to go. Because they were executing so many people so often that it made sense. Now, all you carried was the Roman crossbar, the horizontal piece. And we think, oh, maybe that makes life easier. Can I tell you? It doesn't. Because the piece we're talking about is a piece of timber that weighs 40 kilos. It actually has been said that as Jesus was so beaten beyond recognition, you put 40 kilos on his back. If he fell and hit the ground with it on top, it's the equivalent of being in a car crash. So as your whole flesh has been ripped off, your ribs are showing, we're now going to put you into a car crash. He couldn't carry it. And so they pulled Simon out, and Simon will actually uh, give us a beautiful picture of Jesus' own words. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said this. Verse 23, if anyone would come after me, it very specifically says Simon was behind Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In the most brutal scene, we actually get a beautiful picture of exactly what Jesus was talking about in our salvation, in what it means to follow Jesus, to pick up our cross, to take part in his salvation that's on offer. Simon quite literally does this. He's from a place called Cyrene, which is actually now in modern-day Libya. And so he was African. Can I get a what? The only other piece of information we get of Simon is given in Mark's account of this moment, where it says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Very important. Remember those names. Because when you fast forward to Paul, as he begins to plant churches and write letters to different churches, he writes a letter to the church in Rome, Romans. And at the end of Romans, he gets into a, a greeting spree. And in Romans chapter 16, he begins to greet the leaders of the Roman church. And this is what he says in verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I don't want you to miss how God took Simon of Cyrene, pulled from obscurity, from passive unbelief, who will experience the brutality of the cross and crucifixion and will be so changed for all eternity that he now plays a part in scripture and will leave a legacy that goes far beyond him to the point where generations to come will follow God and will lead in his church. It's not just uh, he went from passive unbelief to active belief. It's that literally his eternity was changed and the eternity of his family was changed. That's what God can do when he sees us in the crowd. He sees you in the crowd, doesn't matter where you are. And he calls you by name. He knows where you are and he's coming after you. The application for us really is that the truth is on offer both to the scoffer and to the obscure. Doesn't matter where we find ourselves in our unbelief, God's grace and mercy through Jesus will come after us. The next one is the two criminals, and I've given them different names. The one is the sinner, and the one is the criminal. You'll, you'll see why. Verse 32 says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, that's Golgotha, we just sang about, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. 
And then in verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save us and uh, save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies this, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two criminals, one I called a sinner because he saw the reality of his sinfulness. He saw his status under God as a man who could not save himself and sees simultaneously the different status of Jesus as the innocent one and Jesus actually as God himself. One criminal rails, one believes. One criminal receives, one criminal rejects. And the picture of the three crosses here is actually no coincidence because it was actually prophesied in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, at the end of verse 12, it says, because he, that's Jesus, poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I want you to know this, that 700 years before Pilate sent them up that hill, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be murdered amongst sinners, criminals, transgressors. And he would be the innocent one. And yet he would be the one interceding still on behalf of the transgressors. And we see it in the conversation with these two, uh, these two criminals. Because these two criminals really give us the dichotomy that is real in humanity. And it sometimes is simultaneously true. We know we can be the ones who deny our error, deny our mistake, argue the point, try to avoid the punishment, put the blame somewhere else. But simultaneously, we also can know deep down if we're wholeheartedly honest with ourselves, deep within our soul, that we have failed, that we are at fault, that we are falling short, that actually we can't save ourselves. If we're truly honest with ourselves, come to the end of ourselves, we realize that actually that is true. But notice that Jesus extends his invitation to both, the one who rails at him and the one who honors and worships him. Both get it, last chance. One receives, one rejects. And the takeaway is really twofold. The first thing is if we're gonna receive the salvation of Jesus, we need to get very real with our sinfulness. We need to realize actually that this thing is real, that we've fallen short, that we have messed it up. And the second thing we need to see is that nobody is too far gone and it's never too late. That actually grace and mercy will come after us to our last breath. For these guys, it quite literally did. Next contrast, I want to take a look at the soldiers. And within the soldiers, we actually find one soldier playing a very important part in the story, and he's the centurion. And so the soldiers who are quite actively active in their unbelief, literally the ones who murder Jesus, this is what it says about them. In verse 36, it says, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. We've heard that before. There was also an inscription over him, as I mentioned, this is the king of the Jews. And then in 44, Jesus has now been on the cross, he's hanging and he's about to die. And in verse 44 it says, it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land and until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
Then Jesus, calling out from the cross with a loud voice, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Not only did these soldiers actually enact the murder of Jesus, but they went to the nth degree to inflict full pain as much as they possibly could. And understand, they were professional hitmen. They were professional executioners. If they didn't get the job done, their life was in trouble. And I'll take you back to the, to the run. Not only did they crucify him, they also would gamble over his clothes while he hung there on the cross. And then actually even before that, they would beat him and then scourge him. And for a moment, I just want to talk about scourging. I know it's brutal, but we need to see it. I know you've probably seen the pictures. I know you've probably seen reenactments of it. But I don't think we quite ever get a picture of what it's really like. If you got scourged, and listen, not every person who got crucified got scourged. It was only for those who were in the highest rate of capital punishment who Rome really wanted to inflict pain on. So what they would do is tie you to a pillar or a post or a rock. They would strip you down. And then a guard on each side would have what was known as a cat of nine tails. That actually, it was a a big whip that had nine uh, strips of leather that they would whip with. And on some of the strips, you would have balls of heavy metal and rock. And they were meant to bludgeon and to tenderize flesh. And then on others, you would have sharpened, razor sharp pieces of metal and bone. So that it wouldn't just hurt when you got whipped, when you got bludgeoned, but actually those pieces would dig in and so they could rip literally pieces of flesh. And so from head to toe, Jesus was scourged. There's historical accounts of literal pieces of rib being completely ripped out from the spine. And then we'll put a 40 kilo Roman crossbar on top of you. He was beyond recognition. And so these guys would carry out that type of death. And I always, when I read this uh, account, before I really dived deep into studying it, I always saw this moment where they offered him sour wine. And I thought, you know, maybe that's the one little bit of respite that they gave him. Because in the midst of it, offering someone a little bit of alcohol seems like maybe that was a bit of, just a little bit of mercy. But when you dive deep into what that actually was and what it meant, I want to tell you, it just gets worse. At that time in the Roman Empire, um, communal bathrooms and uh, plumbing was starting to take, uh, take over and be more accessible to more people. And it was before the invention of toilet paper. And so what you would find in those facilities were sponges for people to clean themselves. And very often if you were rich, you got your slave to clean for you. And so what they would do is put a sponge on a stick and help you out. Roman soldiers were known to carry these sponges with them when they were out on their actions. And to try and help with the hygiene levels of these sponges, what they would do is dip them in sour wine, into alcohol. And that's what they offered to Jesus. That's what they put in the mouth of God. And we understand the depth of the sin that was committed against Jesus. And we can be very like, the the soldiers murdered Jesus. But what we start to realize in the truth of sin is that all sin is against God alone. That actually sin is never just against you or against someone else against you. But actually that it's why the psalmist says, God, against you alone have I sinned. 
Against you alone have I sinned. And so understand, it wasn't just our sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was our sin that kept him there. And the sin that was committed by the soldiers was not committed by the soldiers alone. It was committed by all of humanity. And so we are guilty just the same. We need to see the brutality of it, the, 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 the horrendousness of it to realize just how horrendous sin is. And that Jesus loves and cares and has so much grace and mercy for us that he would enact a plan of redemption to bring us back. Those are still the ones that he would cry out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then we get the picture of the centurion who starts to cotton onto what the plan actually was. Because as he had walked through, and he had probably done this many, many times, as he had walked Jesus through this process of beating and scourging and leading the procession and taking him to the, the communal dump site to execute and crucify him and then actually declare him dead as darkness reigned, as the curtain in the temple was torn in two, he has a realization, and I love that scripture records it very specifically. It says that he praises God and declares certainly this man was innocent. Because he starts to cotton on to what the plan was. And if Jesus could get a hold and change the mind of someone like that, I want you to know there's no one too far gone. Because a centurion was a high rank in, a ro in the Roman world. He would be over a hundred men. He would be a man's man, a leader of leaders. He would be a battle-hardened guy. He would be the guy that is special forces, SAS, Marine. You didn't mess with him. And that guy who had probably seen this happen a million times sees Jesus and sees something different. And when he sees something different, he actually gets to the point where he says, you know what, this guy is true. This is real, and even more so, this is someone I could follow. If he could turn that guy around, I want you to know he could turn anyone around. He just murdered Jesus, and yet grace and mercy still grabs a hold of him so that salvation can be true for him too. This verse pops out a lot. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If you want to see the strength of Jesus, the fact was he was powerful enough to take them all out, to take himself off the cross, to call down angel armies, and yet he doesn't. And the answer that comes from the centurion and the answer that comes from all of scripture and all of truth is that he was the Christ, the chosen one. Last heading I want to take a look at is this Christ. Of first importance for this Easter weekend, I want to take you to this verse. I actually used it in the preach I did a couple weeks ago. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The most important thing we need to take a look at first on this Easter weekend is the truth of his, his coming, his death, his burial. The first thing we need to see is Christ crucified. Because if he wasn't crucified, none of this matters. That actually the two questions we should be asking is how did Jesus die? And then most importantly, why did he die? We know how he died. He died from being crucified, but you need to go a bit deeper into what that looked like. I think we've seen the brutality of it. Crucifixion was invented 800 years before Jesus by the Persians. It gets perfected by the Roman Empire, and the goal was to inflict as much pain for as long as possible. Victims usually would die of suffocation. Not so for Jesus. 
historical accounts and even medical evidence that people have seen through uh, eyewitness accounts in scripture and even outside of scripture actually lead to a different conclusion. Because the fact that Jesus died so quickly, he was only on the cross for six hours, probably means that didn't happen. The fact that actually after he's declared dead, he gets stabbed in his side and blood and water come out, indicating he had internal bleeding. And so a better answer is probably that Jesus actually died from an internal chest contusion so that when his heart sack was ruptured, blood and water came out. And some people have even posited that the truth, that the way to look at it is in the physical, Jesus died of a broken heart. But if you think that's bad in the physical, we've missed just how bad it would be in the spiritual. Because in the spiritual, he would take all of the wrath of God, God's broken heart towards our sin, God's broken heart towards our iniquity. And the question comes up, why? I don't think there's a debate that Jesus died. I, don't, I know there's some people who go down roads of like, oh, it was a, there, was, there was a swooning. Uh, he, he, he half died and then kind of recovered. No, no, professional executioners who had done this a lot of times and their life was on the line declared him dead. He was dead. He gets taken actually to be released so that his body could be buried meant that they needed an extra layer of, of protection to say he is actually dead. Romans placed a seal on his tomb to make sure that no one would take the body. They made sure it was a body. There's no debating the physical death of Jesus. But the question that has to be answered is why? Why do we call it Good Friday? Why does Christianity preach a message called the good news, the gospel of Jesus? That's literally what it means. How on earth can we celebrate a brutal, horrendous scene like this? How are we built foundationally on a, a man being murdered who was innocent? How could we ever celebrate that God was murdered by man? I want to tell you why it's good. I want to tell you why we can. Because it was God's plan from the beginning. Because actually, this is how it was meant to be. He had foretold it thousands of years before that redemption would come to humanity and it would come through a lamb being led to slaughter, that he would give up his own son to become our substitute, to take our punishment so that his righteousness, his cleanliness, his holiness could be imputed to us as our sin was imputed on him. That spotless lamb would be marred by the sin of all humanity. That's why it's good news. It's why actually... Um, that phrase, Christ died for our sins, is so important. Because if the for isn't there, none of this matters. It's not good news. It's why in Romans it says again, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God makes a way by sending Jesus as our substitute, the one who knew no sin. That's why it says it in 2 Corinthians 5. He made him to, who, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. The invitation is on offer, the gate is open wide. And that, that requires a response from us. It requires a confession from us. The band's gonna join me on stage. And I'd ask just right now in this moment as we reflect, I told you at the very beginning that the crowd is actually a whole bunch of different versions of what we could be. 
Maybe you are right now or have been in the past. Maybe you found yourself in passivity or in activity. Maybe you find in yourself right now in unbelief. But I want you to know that Jesus' desire and his heart for you, all cards on the table, is that you would actively believe in who he is, what he did, and why he died for you. That is the goal. And so I don't know who you identify with within these, these accounts. Maybe you have been in that space of the woman where you actually have put your faith in and sought righteousness and sought relationship with God and right standing with God based on morality of being a good person of a religious structure. Can I tell you, you've missed Jesus. He wants you to get a hold of him. Maybe you found that Simon and the scoffers spoke to you because you've been in that place of unbelief, whether you were railing against Jesus or simply you're sitting in passivity. I want you to know Jesus will extend grace and mercy to you too. I want, maybe you're seeing the criminals and the story is that they got on the last day grace and mercy offered to them and it was not too late. But my encouragement if you're in that space and say, you know what, I've got more days ahead. Can I tell you what's better than the last day? Today. Because Jesus is calling today. He's got your number. He's ready. He won't stop until the last moment. He didn't stop with the criminal who railed against him. Believe me, he's not stopping with you but today's the day. The last one is the soldiers. I want you to know as, as great sin was committed against Jesus by these soldiers, it showed again that no one is too far gone. The centurion is the case for it. But if we don't see that our sin put him on the cross, that we are guilty of the cross, that our, that our sin actually is, is over, then we've missed the start of point, starting point of the gospel. The reality of us is being fallen short in not being able to save ourselves. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to get ourselves ready to have communion together. And as we get ready, I know I've spoken about it a lot and mentioned it a lot, but Jesus has an invitation of salvation, and that invitation is extended every single moment to every single one of us. And maybe you have done this a thousand times, or maybe this is the first time, and you know Jesus is doing work in you right now. You know Jesus is speaking to your heart right now. That actually you have never taken that step to put your faith in Him. To put your trust in Him. To grab a hold of that gift of salvation. To receive it in the same way that we saw people even on the road to the cross and even on the cross do. I want you to know that invitation is on offer. And so we're with every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to give you a moment to respond to that if that is you. And as I've been speaking, you know right now God is doing work in your heart. And even as I ask you to raise your hand, I just want to be able to pray with you. I want you to know that God's love is in pursuit of you. It has seen you. Where you have come to the end of yourself, His word to you, His encouragement to you, His exhortation to you is enough. Not one more step without me. The sad thing about the criminal who actually was the sinner that took Jesus' grace in the last moment was that he didn't get to spend a day on earth walking with Jesus. Can I tell you that's not God's heart for us. He will extend grace to the last second. That's how good he is. But I want you to know his plan is today. And that is what he is calling you to. And so if that is you, I'm just gonna ask you for a moment just with every eye closed to raise your hand so that I know who I'm praying with because I'd love to pray with you as you take that step. As we join with these people, we raise hands and raise hearts.
I want you to just join me in this prayer. Jesus, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge the reality of it. I acknowledge the damage of it. I know I can do nothing with it. But I receive your gift of salvation, knowing that you were my substitute, knowing that you paid the price, and that in you I can be free. Lord, I walk in that freedom, having confessed you as Lord over my life from this day into eternity. The beauty of that moment is that it is a free gift. The beauty is that it is a gift that is an offer every, to every single one of us every single moment of, of history. And we're going to go into a time of communion. And uh, you'll find down the middle to my right and to left, we've got communion stations where there's actual bread and grape juice. And I'm so going to encourage that you actually, if you came with people, if you've got friends or, or people you know around you, this is a moment where it was actually done as a meal. And so it's a moment where we actually get to share with each other. And so don't be afraid to send someone and let them grab for you. And don't be afraid to break the bread and share with those who are around you, friends, who are people you're with. Because it's a moment where we get to do this together as a people and really celebrate what Jesus did in his body and his blood being shared for us. And so man's going to play softly. I'm going to encourage you to go grab your elements, come back to your chair, and then we're going to take it together. Go for it now. like everyone's ready to go on the night Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and he said to his disciples this is my body that will be broken for you and the funny thing is that was pre Friday they hadn't seen that picture yet they hadn't watched that walk up the Via Della Rosa the road to the cross where his body was broken where he was beaten beyond recognition that that was the body that would be torn apart for them. And yet he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in honor of me. Do this in celebration of me because actually it's by this body being broken that you can be brought into relationship with God. We've had people right through the day take that step for the very first time. And their first time taking communion with Jesus as Lord has been today. There's something to celebrate about the body being broken and it goes against all human cognizance and understanding. How do we look at that picture and say it's beauty? Simon of Cyrene got to see the brutality of the crucifixion up close and personal. He literally probably had Jesus' blood stain him as he picked up that crossbar. 
And in the brutality, he looked through it to see the beauty of a savior. And that's the savior that we remember. His body broken for us. Let's eat together. It wells up within us a, a feeling of gratitude, of thankfulness that goes far beyond just, hey, I received an Easter egg. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. And I want to take you back to that picture. After the soldiers had declared Jesus dead, they stabbed his side, pierced it with a spear, and that blood and water gushed out. It was evidence that he didn't suffocate. But it was so right that Jesus actually died by bleeding because his blood had to be shed for us. And so that blood is the perfect picture for the debt that was paid. It's why we can raise the glass and celebrate knowing that Jesus' blood was literally poured out for us. That it covered over our sin. And then the picture of the water is that it is the thing that cleanses us. His holy living water that makes us white as snow. Where we were so marred by sin, so broken by sin, so dirtied by sin, we're cleaned. Brought into right standing with God, right relationship with our Creator. Where that spotless lamb takes on the dirt, the grime of our sin, and we get made white as snow. And so we raise a glass and we celebrate, knowing He is our King who has shed His blood for us. And just like the centurion who was led to worship following the truth of who Jesus was, why He died, and the implications of that, I want us to get our hearts ready to worship. Because we're going to sing a song that's going to declare Jesus King. Declare Him King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the name that is above every name. That God had, the Father has exalted Him above all because He was the one who was our sacrifice, who was our substitute, who actually took on our shame so that we could be made right with God. Let's lift our hands, our eyes, let's lift our voices, let's lift our hearts, let's lift the roof as we worship our King. Let's do that.